One focus, one subject. Welcome to The Real Story, the podcast that brings together global experts to explain one issue shaping the news. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising. You're listening to The Real Story with me, Paul Henley. This week, we're going to discuss something that's become the most talked about issue in Washington, D.C., the impeachment investigation of President Donald Trump. On September the 24th, the leader of the US Lower House of Congress finally relented to a demand made by many Democratic Party politicians and announced an impeachment inquiry into the president. It centres around a whistleblower complaint that alleged that President Trump solicited the help of the Ukrainian president to undermine a political rival. Nancy Pelosi said she could no longer ignore what the president did, while the Democratic congressman Adam Schiff, who chairs the House Intelligence Committee, said the president's admission was sufficient reason to move for impeachment. Let's hear some of the key comments from that week. The president of Ukraine brought up his country's need for military assistance, and immediately thereafter, the president of the United States said, I have a favor I want to ask of you. There was only one message that that president of Ukraine got from that call, and that was, this is what I need I know what you need. Like any mafia boss, the president didn't need to say, that's a nice country you have. It'd be a shame if something happened to it, because that was clear from the conversation. I didn't do it. I didn't threaten anybody. In fact, the press was asking questions of the president of Ukraine, and he said, no pressure. I used the word pressure. I think he used the word push, but he meant pressure, but it's the same thing. No push, no pressure, no nothing. It's all a hoax, folks. It's all a big hoax. The complaint reports a, quote, repeated abuse of an electronic record system designed to store classified, sensitive national security information, which the White House used to hide information of a political nature. This is a cover-up. This is a cover-up. When they look at the information, it's a joke. Impeachment for that? When you have a wonderful meeting or you have a wonderful phone conversation? I think you should ask. We actually, you know, that was the second conversation. I think you should ask for the first conversation also. It was beautiful. It was just a perfect conversation. The unmistakable voice of Donald Trump. And we also heard from the House Majority Leader Nancy Pelosi and the House Intelligence Committee Chair Adam Schiff. The president himself and most Republicans are calling it a witch hunt. The Democrats say it's a means of upholding the Constitution. So we already have very much a partisan tone. Are impeachments a fair and objective way of removing a president from office? To discuss these issues, I'm joined by four guests who are going to bring their unique perspectives to this discussion. Bob Barr is a former Republican congressman from Georgia. He led the charge to impeach Bill Clinton and was one of the 13 House impeachment managers who carried out that process in the House of Representatives. He joins us from Atlanta. Jill Winebanks is a legal analyst for the news channel MSNBC. She was an assistant Watergate special prosecutor. She's in Chicago. Elaine Kmark is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. She's also author of Why Presidents Fail and How They Can Succeed Again. She worked in the Clinton administration briefly. She joins us from Washington. 
And from Dallas, Texas, I'm joined by Jeffrey A. Engel. He is the director of the Center for Presidential History at the Southern Methodist University and co-author of Impeachment, an American History. Welcome all. I think you'll agree we have quite the specialists to examine these issues. Let me start by asking all of you one simple question. What did you think when you heard the impeachment announcement against President Trump? Jeffrey, first. I thought it's, it was clear that the dam had broken within the Democratic Party. That, as I say, many Democrats, of course, have been calling for President Trump's impeachment, to be honest, since before he was inaugurated in many cases. Uh, and Nancy Pelosi, of course, always thought that that was a politically unwise move, even after the Mueller report gave, for many, sufficient evidence to begin investigating further or begin an impeachment inquiry at that point. She still thought that this would actually be something that would help Donald Trump politically Clearly, she is a vote counter, and she thinks that the votes in her party are now overwhelmingly for impeachment even before the inquiry begins. Elaine Kmark, did you think it was a momentous thing to be announced? Oh, absolutely. And I viewed it as the straw that broke the camel's back. Impeachment has been hovering over this administration since early on when the president fired James Comey, reminding many of us of the Saturday night massacre during Watergate. So impeachment has been in the air, and yet the Mueller report never really directly implicated the president himself. When this phone call came out with the implications that he was holding up another leader using American money, I think that was the last straw. And you saw the rest of the Democratic caucus move to be in favor of impeachment. Jill Winebanks, did you feel celebratory? No, I don't think anyone can ever feel that way about the need for impeachment. I think it is a sad day that we come to this, but I agree with Elaine that it was a long time in coming. It was an easily understandable shakedown of a foreign leader, but don't forget there's also a cover-up here. So I think all of that became something that the American public could really understand. Um, although the president still maintains a high approval rating among his his fans, I think this this was a sad day, but a necessary day. There is no way to protect democracy if we don't hold the president accountable. Bob Barr, as a Republican, what did you think? What I thought when I heard uh, Ms. Pelosi's uh, announcement uh, last week was, to use a very technical term that we lawyers like to use, poppycock. Uh, the, uh, the second thought that entered my mind was, where's the beef? Uh, what the speaker is trying to do is to have it both ways. She announces that there is going to be a formal inquiry of impeachment, and yet there is no resolution that would in fact constitute a formal inquiry of impeachment. They want it to appear that they are doing something formal, by the book, based on precedents. But on the other hand, they're giving themselves a way out so that if this all falls apart, as it very likely will, then they can say, well, we never really launched a formal inquiry. So, you know, we're just moving on to other things. It is uh, typically deceptive of the Democrat majority in the House, the way they're proceeding with uh, what might be called a faux impeachment inquiry. Well, all of your answers raise questions that we hope to deal with during the course of this program. Let's look first at the whole idea of impeachment. It is uniquely American. Or is it? Elaine K. Mark, you believe it comes from British law originally. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that the founding fathers picked up the term and the concept from you guys in Britain, and it was intended to deal with exactly the situation we're dealing with here. And remember that impeachment is not exactly a formal crime, but it is something that is not considered proper for the head of the state to be engaged in. Um, Jeffrey Engel, the founding fathers kept it pretty vague, didn't they, when they said that this was about high crimes and misdemeanours, certainly open to interpretation. Well, yes, in fact, it has to be open to interpretation because of exactly what my colleague mentioned, that one of the things that's critical to understand about the way the founders understood impeachment and wrote it into the Constitution is that there does not necessarily need to be a crime, a high crime, which doesn't need to be a crime, uh, is something where the leader essentially works against the interests of the state for his or her own good. It's critical to note that you can also commit a crime in office and have it not be a high crime. My favorite example is that uh, a president could be convicted of jaywalking, which of course we'll all recognize is both a crime, and I think anybody would reasonably agree is not something that would make you unfit for office. But you have to go back one step further, actually, to understand that they first began debating at the Constitutional Convention the term maladministration as a criteria for impeachment, bad administration, if you will, and immediately realized that that was problematic in the extreme. It was too political, if you will, that if you could impeach a president for basically being bad at his or her job, well, that would essentially would allow Congress and the Senate to have a complete referendum over the president whenever they wanted. Too much power going to the Congress. Consequently, they determined that maladministration was best remedied by elections. That is, if you are a terrible president, the power of the people will take care of that. High crimes and misdemeanors, also treason and bribery as part of the full clause, is really reserved for someone who chooses their interests, their personal stake over the stake of the nation. Bob Barr, do you think American citizens are relatively used to the concept because state officials and judges have been impeached in a high-profile way in the past? The American public, uh, the electorate, if you will, has very little understanding of what impeachment is, very little understanding of the... Uh, mechanisms of separate powers uh, between the government, between the branches of our government, very little understanding of the limited role that government, particularly the legislative branch, is supposed to play uh, in uh, in governance. And this is a real problem uh, because as we saw, those of us who were involved in the 1998 impeachment of President Clinton, because the public has so little understanding of the mechanisms of government, the administration of government, and impeachment in particular, it makes it relatively easy for an administration or one party or the other to define the impeachment issues in a way that has nothing to do with what impeachment really was intended to be. And therefore, notwithstanding the fact that the term high crimes and misdemeanors was clearly understood uh, to be those things that a president might do that are beyond simply a violation of a particular law, perhaps, and that go directly to undermining the responsibility, the power of the office itself. Jill Wine-Banks, impeachment has the trappings of a court case, but it's not exactly that, is it? It isn't at all the same. The rules are different. The jury is very different. But I think in terms of what we've been listening to, 
everyone is correct that this is a way of holding accountable a president who has not necessarily violated the exact elements of a specific criminal code in the United States. But it is, as with Richard Nixon, there were three articles of impeachment which all would equally apply in this case, and that is for contempt of Congress. There's also abuse of power, which would be as in using your power as president to get something of value for your own personal benefit as opposed to for the good of the country. And then there's the obstruction counts um, that were against Nixon and could equally apply here. So I think that those are not necessarily criminal code violations, but they are high crimes and misdemeanors by anyone's definition. A reminder, you're listening to The Real Story from the BBC World Service with me, Paul Henley. And this week, we're looking at impeachment. You might be able to guess why if you follow any news from Washington, D.C. Let's consider the previous three impeachments of presidents that the United States have experienced. The first was Andrew Johnson, the 17th president, and then Richard Nixon and Bill Clinton. Johnson was Abraham Lincoln's vice president and became president after Lincoln's assassination. In 1868, he was tried by the House for High Crimes and Misdemeanors. The Senate found him not guilty, but he subsequently failed to get the party's nomination in the next election. Richard Nixon faced impeachment in 1974, the aftermath of the Watergate scandal, and resigned from office before the Senate could vote to oust him. Bill Clinton faced impeachment for his affair with a White House intern and for lying about it. He was impeached by the House, but he survived a Senate vote. Now, in the coming weeks, some key figures and some not-so-known faces will be heading over to Capitol Hill to explain what they saw or knew about President Trump's activities that are part of this impeachment inquiry. In a way, it all depends on the strength of their testimonies. John Dean was a star witness during President Nixon's trial. He was President Nixon's legal counsel who was asked to help cover up presidential guilt, but who ended up cooperating with the investigators. On whether Mr Trump should be impeached now... He doesn't mince his words. Well, I think he's got to be impeached. He's really uh, making Richard Nixon look like a choir boy. And so if if somebody doesn't stop him, Lord knows where this is going to go for our democracy. Well, as you see it, is an insider like yourself needed in order to bring President Trump to impeachment? An insider would certainly help Mr. Trump has now actually confessed to making a very improper telephone call to the president of Ukraine, asking him to dig up dirt on one of his potential 2020 political rivals. Well, he confessed to making the telephone call. I'm not sure he confessed that it was improper. No, he, he doesn't think it's improper. He calls it a beautiful call. He has absolutely no understanding or appreciation of how the American presidency works. He's using it as his own personal weapon, if you will. And yet his impeachment will depend on people within his own party turning against him. Is a witness key to that? A witness certainly helps because they have been effectively blocking all witnesses. They've let really nobody testify. The only witness who have appeared so far are those who just say, I'm going anyway, even though they don't want me to go, or they've gone up and been very hostile witnesses and very combative with the committees. 
You paid quite a heavy price for your initial part in this whole Watergate affair, didn't you? Uh, you? You lost your career as a lawyer, and you had to go into the witness protection program. That's correct. It was something I fully anticipated. It was something I knew was going to happen, but I refused to lie. And obviously, we could have gotten away with it all. I just wasn't willing to play that game. I thought it was wrong and did not care. I have been invited many times to get my law license back, but I don't practice anymore. I have really no interest in that. I have had other uh, business that is more than made for a wonderful career. And do you think there are figures within the current administration, lawyers particularly, who would be willing to make that kind of sacrifice in order for the truth as you see it to come out? I'm hopeful still. I don't know if that'll happen. The conservative movement here has gotten very, very nasty. They are very threatening to, to potential witnesses. And Trump has reached down and pulled out some ugly element of America that probably threatens any witness that knows their life will be miserable for an indefinite period of time. So he's been effective in intimidating people. That was John Dean, now in his 80s, former star witness in the impeachment case of President Nixon. Elaine K. Mark, who could the star witness in the Trump case be? (laughs) That's a good question. Um, It could possibly be some NSC staffer that we've never heard of who is able to detail what exactly and under what circumstances went into that top secret server that really should not have belonged in that server. If you remember, you go all the way back to President Trump's first meeting with uh, Vladimir Putin in Hamburg, and the president, and this has been reported widely, the president took the notes away from the translator and told the translator, don't talk to anybody about this meeting. There has been a lot of cover-up going on, and I think we're going to find out what it's been about. Bob Barr, the country backed President Clinton. They didn't back President Nixon at the time. Um, How much do you think public support counts? It counts a great deal, perhaps more than it should in a sense. On the one hand, if in fact a majority of members of the House of Representatives truly believe that a president has engaged in high crimes and misdemeanors, then the House ought to proceed regardless of what the polls say. But from a practical matter, certainly it does matter. In this case, unlike, for example, the case against President Clinton, which wound up being a very specific evidence charging violations of federal criminal law. The Clinton administration, however, was very, very adept, very successful largely at defining the playing field very different, that uh, it was just about the president's personal behavior. And that did, in fact, affect the, the process. Jeffrey, President Clinton emerged from his failed impeachment proceedings, more popular than ever, didn't he? 
He did, and and I think I would like to you know gently disagree with my colleague, uh, former Representative Barr, about some of the issues about the Clinton case that we see as historians that we see in retrospect, because I think it really does speak to the question of what a high crime or misdemeanor was. Nobody disputes. There's no reason to dispute that President Clinton violated federal law. He did lie. He did obstruct justice, but largely over the context of something which was not a state affair. I've used the word affair there because that's the problem. It was an affair, but it was personal. I mean, and I think the American people actually were very wise at this moment in that they were able to recognize the difference between a crime and a high crime. And to be honest, I think it was not difficult for the American people to understand that the president had lied when asked about an extramarital affair. Unfortunately, there's a large number of Americans who probably have done the same thing. That's really the best way to understand why Clinton's impeachment didn't go forward. Yes, there was a tremendous ability by the and tremendous job done by the Clinton administration to shape that narrative. But the reason it worked to shape the narrative is because it was a narrative the American people understood. President Clinton, Bob Barr, denied and denied, and then he admitted and then he apologized. President Trump's approach so far is a very familiar one. It's all lies. It's fake news. Well, in, the, in this case, the president is, uh, is absolutely correct. There is nothing in that phone call that reaches the level of an impropriety. But have you ever uh, heard him admit to anything that he was accused of? That's not really the point. A major point here, it, Paul, is that this so-called whistleblower is not a whistleblower. It is absolutely clear in reading the complaint memo that this so-called whistleblower forwarded to the inspector general was engaged in a long-running conspiracy, a plan, a scheme, if you will, to undermine this president. And the president is absolutely within his rights to demand that this come out into the open. This is a saboteur. This is not a whistleblower. Elaine, your response to that? Well, that's quite a, quite an amazing statement that this guy's a saboteur. Come on. I mean, that's pretty ridiculous. He has been doing exactly what whistleblowers do, which is put together evidence of impropriety by an elected official. That's how we keep our system from corruption is whistleblowers. That's why we protect them. Jill, it's not easy to be a whistleblower, is it? Uh, not in this administration. The president has threatened the whistleblower with exposure. He's demanding that he be able to confront him face to face, which is, of course, the exact opposite of what the whistleblower law is intended to do. We need patriots like this person to notify when something has happened that threatens our national security, as it did here. And we can't expect that if the life of that person is threatened by the President of the United States. What protection Uh, does the law offer a whistleblower? It offers, obviously, complete anonymity so that they will not be identified. That is the main protection. This particular whistleblower is asking for some actual physical protection given the threat to him. And just to remind you, you're listening to a podcast edition of The Real Story from the BBC World Service, this week looking at impeachment. 
Each week we tackle a different topic and you can download the programme every Friday. I encourage you to subscribe so you won't miss an edition. And there are also many other BBC World Service podcasts you can choose from. You could try Witness, our history series, told by the people who were there. First-hand accounts of some of the most important events which have helped to shape our lives and the places we live in. There are five podcasts a week with an incredible archive to delve into. And please do let us know what you think of this podcast from The Real Story or any ideas for topics you'd like us to look into. You can email us at therealstory at bbc.co.uk. But now let's get back to this edition of The Real Story with me, Paul Henley, looking at impeachment. I'm joined by four eminent guests from the US. In Dallas, Jeffrey A. Engel. He is director of the Center for Presidential History at the Southern Methodist University and co-author of Impeachment, an American History. In Washington, Elaine K. Mark is senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. She's also author of Why Presidents Fail and How They Can Succeed Again. She worked in the Clinton administration. In Chicago, Jill Weinbanks is an MSNBC legal analyst who was an assistant Watergate special prosecutor. And in Atlanta, we have Bob Barr, former Republican congressman from Georgia. He was one of the House impeachment managers against Bill Clinton. Now, if you tune in to any American news channel, you're very likely to see politicians and strategists from both parties trying to frame the arguments in favour of their respective side. It, It seems there's almost a parallel trial going on in the court of public opinion away from Capitol Hill. We've discussed both Nixon and Clinton earlier in the programme. Let's listen to the way they spoke to the nation after their impeachment processes. First, a part of Richard Nixon's resignation speech. By taking this action, I hope that I will have hastened the start of that process of healing which is so desperately needed in America. I regret deeply any injuries that may have been done in the course of the events that led to this decision. I would say only that if some of my judgments were wrong, and some were wrong, they were made in what I believed at the time to be the best interest of the nation. And now Bill Clinton. This is one of several apologies he made having survived the vote. I ask you for your understanding for your forgiveness on this journey we're on. I hope this will be a time of reconciliation and healing, and I hope that millions of families all over America are, in a way, growing stronger because of this. I want to be open with you. I want you to understand these have been the toughest days of my life, but they may turn out to be the most valuable for me and my family. And I have no one to blame but myself for my self-inflicted wounds. Well, both presidents spoke to the nation there. Was it important to talk directly to citizens and to sound so contrite? Jeffrey Engel. You know, I I think it was both for the fact that Clinton, of course, having survived his impeachment uh, trial, obviously still had time in office as president. But I think one of the other things that's critical is that it does reinforce that this is, by definition, a political act. And oftentimes people say, impeachment, I mean, oftentimes people say that with a little sneer in their voice as though there's something dangerous or sullied about the fact that it's a political act. But this is a, a decision that revolves around what is politically understandable and politically useful at the time. All of which is to say, you know, we have seen in the case of Richard Nixon that the politics can change really dramatically. 
as I say, the majority of Republicans in the summer of 1974 supported Richard Nixon and the majority of Americans, in fact, were against impeachment all up until the moment when new evidence appeared and the famous smoking gun tape we can get into when new evidence appeared, which completely changed the dynamics of the political scene. One example, the White House vote counters determined that they probably had about 40 to 45 senators that would never vote for impeachment and therefore the president need not worry. 48 hours later, after that evidence, they counted it was about 14. And it really demonstrates that this is a, a moment when the American people, through the representatives, can make judgments, and those judgments can change because our politics can change in an instant. And Bob Barr, there has been a significant shift, according to very recent US opinion polls, in public opinion, towards supporting an impeachment against President Trump. Now, given that the votership is so divided, that's quite a big deal, isn't it? It is, but these things, as Jeffrey was just saying, and as all of us know from having watched these things over the years, it can be very fickle. It can change very quickly. For example, if the Adam Schiff incident the other day, the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, having engaged in the theatrics of a fake conversation, that can affect it. The news that came out yesterday that contrary to the implication, if not the explicit words of Schiff uh, and the committee, they did have access to the so-called whistleblower and probably helped uh, him or her draft the complaint that will affect uh, these issues. But ultimately, you know, the American public is not really going to get down into the weeds like we might as lawyers and political pundits. But These things can change very, very quickly. Uh, In this case, what we're really talking about is a small sector of the electorate. President Trump's base will be with him no matter what. The Democrat base will be with it against Trump no matter what. Really, no matter Uh, what? Absolutely, no matter what. It doesn't Uh, matter what comes out in this impeachment process. Not at all to the to the party's uh, basis in in this case, and that and that's something but that it can't, uh, sure, is it can't very... be true that nothing will stop somebody voting for President Trump. <laughs> I, I have to say, I find that comment extraordinarily disturbing. No, yes, well, what what too. what uh, con- yeah, contrast, for example, what happened in the the Nixon case, and it just gives an indication of how politics and the polity has changed so dramatically in America, not for the better, for the worse. Jill, was that uh, you be- saying you found the comment disturbing? It, It was Elaine, but I find it more than disturbing. I find it delusional. Um, I think that so much of what Mr. Barr is saying is delusional in the same way that saying that this conversation with Ukraine is not established, that there was a shakedown. I can read you the language. It is right in front of me where the president says, I would like you to do us a favor, though, before I agree to sell you the equipment that you need to defend yourself. That's right there. And there is then the favor is spelled out as going back to the 2016 election, which the president can't let go of and interfering in the 2020 election. But by Jill, getting let's go dirt, back to the fake ba- dirt. Let's go back fake, to the I just base have to finish. idea. OK, quickly, I, I, because it's fake dirt that doesn't exist, that's been debunked. And yet it goes on and on and on. And To say that Schiff had any access to the whistleblower is simply untrue. He did not know who it was. And to say that on your show is a disgrace. Elaine, let's go back, please, to this comment that nothing will shift President Trump's voter base. If you disagree with that, then you have 
faith in parts of the American public that some people might expect you not to have? Well, I believe that there's going to be a great deal of shifting. Maybe there already has been some shifting. There will be more as evidence comes out and as the case gets made. The very important thing to realize here... Does it hinge on it being easy to understand? I think that right now, as we speak, the members of Congress, Democrats and Republicans are in their districts and they are explaining this to people. It's not rocket science. Everybody has watched a mafia movie. Everybody knows what a shakedown is. The issue here is people keep measuring Donald Trump's strength among his base among Republicans. What they don't look at is the fact that his base is shrinking and the Republican Party is shrinking. And what's happening is that the number of independents in the electorate is growing. As people say, wow, I just can't call myself a Republican anymore. They don't run over and become a Democrat. They say, oh, I'm going to be an independent. And that's, of course, what we saw in the 2018 elections. So yes, Donald Trump may have a steady hold on his base, but his base is becoming a smaller portion of the whole electorate. He is not doing well among independents. That's where the shift has been. And there are not enough Republicans to have him winning an election. So this contention that nothing is going to shake his base and that his base is everything overlooks the fact that his base is a small portion of the electorate. Jeffrey Engel. I think we have to look at what happened in the Nixon era. If you follow the statistics, he won 49 out of 50 states. He won the popular vote, unlike President Trump. And his numbers were overwhelming support, over 64 percent, when this whole thing started and ended at 24 percent. Support for impeachment grew in direct proportion to the fall in his approval as the facts came out. And the facts are coming out now, and it is going to hurt President Trump. One key difference here, which makes your statement more important, really, is that President Trump is up for re-election, while Nixon and Clinton were not. Jeffrey, is that a factor here? I think it's a tremendous factor. We've never actually seen that in an impeachment case because Andrew Johnson back in the 1860s was never going to get his party's nomination. He was remarkably unpopular, not least because he was not a real Republican, if you will. And I think that the politics going forward can very much play out as they have over history. And we are waiting at this point to see, in this essence, what the Senate will do, presuming an impeachment resolution is passed by the House. And to date, the general conventional wisdom has been that the Senate will not break. The Republican support in the Senate will not break. But I would suggest to people, first of all, the Nixon case suggests otherwise, but also on a personal level, and this harkens back to Andrew Johnson, who did not have much support because he was personally unpleasant and unpopular. If I show you a, a list of Republican senators, I can show you the exact same list of Republicans that Donald Trump has insulted at one time or another. And I think that the support that he has within the Republican Senate is perhaps uh, very thin and could break very quickly. At least history suggests as much. Bob Barr, you suggested that the base vote for President Trump was unshakable. Is the base vote in the upper house for him among Republicans unshakable? Or can you imagine a point, not necessarily over this case, when some Republicans would decide he was an electoral liability? 
certainly uh, that can be the case. I don't see that affecting or a large number of Republicans in the Senate falling into that category unless there is something completely new out there, some bombshell or whatnot. But I think it was Elaine that took such umbrage at what I was saying and launched into unfortunate ad hominem attacks, which I'm not used to when I listen to BBC. What I'm saying is that the base, because politics has become so poisonously partisan these days, and I think that's bad, having been there when it wasn't as poisonous as it is, the fact is that both sides have gone to their corners and will remain there no matter what, in my view. That could change, but I don't see that changing. So really what we're talking about here is a relatively small but very important number of undecided or independent voters or Republican voters who are you know, have never liked Trump and a few Democrats that can see beyond the histrionics of uh, Adam Schiff or Jerry Nadler. And we saw that in, in the Clinton case. Uh, there were Democrats that voted for impeachment. Certainly we saw the numbers change dramatically in Nixon's case with Republicans coming out in favor of impeachment. But in my view, the way politics is perceived and practiced now in America is very different from even what it was during the Clinton era one generation ago. Is politics that different, Jeffrey? You know, politics are worse. I don't think anybody would disagree with that, to be honest. I think we're at a time that's as unpleasant as in the 1850s, which as a historian is a very unpleasant thing to think about. I also think that Republicans would be wise if they cared about their party, about the long-term health of their party, to consider whether tying themselves so tightly to Donald Trump, who parenthetically was not a Republican until quite recently, is a wise move. I mean, look back at the history of this. After Nixon leaves office, of course, the Democrats win the next election, but the Republicans win the next three. And I think one of the reasons that is possible is because, in essence, by cutting loose Richard Nixon, they essentially got rid of the cancer within their party. And I think if Republicans are concerned beyond 2020 about the health of their party, they might have to say, we are going to lose in 2020. We might lose in 2020, whether the president is on the agenda, on the ballot or not. But long term, it'll be deleterious to our uh, effectiveness and popularity if we continue to tie ourselves to a person who, frankly, scandal seems to follow. Jill Wine-Banks, the deterioration in political discourse has a lot to do with the deterioration in, in language, the, the level of insults that are thrown around by both sides. Does it really help the debate even before an impeachment case is properly underway, to compare the president to a mob boss? No, and I think what's happened in America is with the advent of social media and all of the networks having proliferated, during Watergate, we had NBC, ABC, and CBS, and they all agreed on the facts. Now, Democrats and Republicans live in their own bubble, and each believes a very different set of information. And unless we can agree on the facts, we can't agree to debate what the meaning of those facts are. Unfortunately, I'm afraid the president has started this with his nicknames and his name calling. And well, that's we part of it, isn't it? He started it, and then it's a, a toing and froing that gets childish. It does, can I, can and I it's unnecessary. 
apologies, guys, I just want to jump in on that from a, from a long-term perspective, because that is actually, I think, a very disturbing trend that we have, the, the yes. back and forth. I mean, it's very easy for all of us, we do this in our own lives, and we certainly do this on our political lives, to turn around and say, well, my guy did something bad, but your guy did something even worse. Mm. I think that that conversation should not occur in the case that we are discussing today. That is to say, we need to focus on the fact that whatever happened in the past, whatever happened in Ukraine with Joe Biden, whatever happened with Hillary Clinton and her server, whatever happened with President Obama and the FISA courts, that's the past. And as a historian, I can say, you can't go back. And you can investigate, and if you wanna throw those people in jail when you find crimes, feel free. But we need to have as a separate conversation that the current occupant of the White House is under investigation. And I'm well, not saying whether he's... Here's a relevant question to that for Elaine. Does national security have a different weight from an extramarital affair? Of course it does. And, and that's why Clinton was acquitted. And in fact, the Democrats picked up seats in the 1998 midterms, which was astonishing. And Al Gore went on to win the popular vote, although he lost in the Electoral College. So the Clinton impeachment, Clinton behavior was certainly nothing to applaud. I mean, it was reprehensible. On the other hand, it did not have national security implications. It was not something that undermined the role of the state and abused the president's power. I suppose and those are claims that you dispute from the off, Bob Barr. Well, certainly the direct evidence against uh, Clinton and the charges on which he was impeached, perjury and obstruction of justice, did not relate specifically to national security. But I don't think that the term high crimes and misdemeanors and the thought process that our founders placed into the Constitution regarding impeachment were limited to national security. So I think that's sort of a red herring to say, well, because it didn't relate to national security, it didn't rise to the level of high crimes and misdemeanors. If you have a high government official, in the case of Clinton, the highest government official in our country, perjuring himself, that is lying under oath in a judicial proceeding and then taking very specific steps to cover it up, that goes to the heart of what it means to be a public official and serve as president, even though it may not have anything to do with national security per se. Jeffrey, can you imagine a claim about an extramarital affair having such prominence in the political world today? <laughs> no, in fact, you know, we, we just went through... I mean, it wouldn't last, touch I mean, President I, Trump, would it? Well, not only, not only I, I don't like to use the word touch and Trump in the same sentence, but uh, in that context, <laughs> but, you know, I, I, I do think that President Trump has gone through innumerable scandals that would have in previous eras, almost re very recent eras, scuttled any pre presidency. There were certainly a, several comments and, of course, the famous Access Hollywood tape that would have typically scuttled a candidate's uh, campaign for office that did not for President Trump. And, I, and just recently, you know, the, the president's lawyer has gone to, before, pre before Giuliani, the president's prior lawyer, has gone to jail for being engaged in Covering up a tryst that the president had in an earlier part of his life with an adult film star and just stop and say that sentence out loud and try to think of it for any other president. The news in this case was, does it matter? In previous cases, we would have asked, did it happen? Elaine Kmod, do you think there's a sense in which some impeachment proceeding was going to happen anyway? The Democrats were under such pressure to get him on something that they've jumped on this one, partly because the timing's very good. They might be able to get it out of the way before an election campaign. 
Oh, no, quite the contrary. I mean, I think that in the summer after the Mueller report, Democrats had pretty much given up on impeachment. We were close to the election. Things were looking good for the Democrats, both in the House and certainly in the presidency. And I think Democrats were not very interested in impeachment. This brought this back with a huge force. And the tipping point was when seven brand new members of Congress, five of whom were military veterans, two of whom had been CIA analysts and operatives. When those seven new members of Congress, all of them from marginal districts, not from safe Democratic districts, when they said, we think this is an impeachable offense, this is offensive, this goes against everything we believe in about how national security policy should be conducted, when those seven moved, 86 other members of the Democratic caucus moved with them. This was a surprise. Uh, Democrats really were not talking about impeachment. They'd given up on it after the Mueller report. Do you think, Bob Barr, that the fact that President Trump doesn't always talk and act like a president, and he hasn't held public office before, is a wide part of his appeal? It is. Uh, it's what uh, attracted many, many voters to him in 2016. I think that many voters in America had become very tired of the lack of progress in Washington, the lack of real transparency in what was being said versus what was being done. And here was this guy who you know, spoke very, very bluntly, painfully bluntly in, in my view. But what I think attracted a lot of voters to him was he was different and he called it like he saw it, which is what uh, a lot of the voters were not seeing in Washington. They were seeing tired politicians engaged in the same sorts of saying one thing and doing another year after year after year. So that really was the major part of candidate Trump's appeal back in 2016. Thank you. As we approach the end of this program, let me ask this question, and it's what will happen to the political parties after an impeachment process. It's going to be a fairly long process, possibly several weeks. And perhaps I'll ask Bob Barr first and briefly, do the Democrats risk entering the next election race already looking like losers if the impeachment doesn't go their way? I think it will affect them adversely. Here again, unless there is something out there that we haven't seen that dramatically changes the facts here. But the fact that the Democrats, since before President Trump was even sworn into office, have been vowing to get him and looking for one reason after another to do so, really has cost them a great deal of credibility and will continue to do so. This is seen as a purely 100 percent political impeachment with no basis in law or constitutional history. Elaine K. Mark, that's a claim uh, from some within Democratic Party ranks that they risk strengthening support for the president. That was clearly the political understanding prior to this revelation. It was clearly thought that Democrats shouldn't go down that road, that nothing Mueller had done had implicated the president directly. And then we had this phone call. But even before this phone call, there were ominous signs for the Republicans, one of them being that there are somewhere in the neighborhood of six or seven Texas 
congressional seats that are now in play. Now, that's sort of astonishing. If you told me that three years ago, I would have said, what? Things are changing pretty quickly. Here's a short answer that all four of you ought to be able to give to the last question of our discussion today. And I'll start with Bob Barr. What do you think will happen? Will the president be impeached? It appears that the Democrats uh, will move forward with impeachment, uh, notwithstanding the lack of uh, following uh, traditional and historic rules and even the House rules in some instance. They will want to get this out of the way as quickly as possible because I think there will be further embarrassments like the the Schiff embarrassment. But will they get Uh, their way? They probably will will have sufficient votes uh, to uh, win an impeachment vote. They will want to get it out of the way uh, so that uh, they can then uh, claim uh, that is the base for their election. But here again, going back to your very first question about uh, Nancy Pelosi and the inquiry of impeachment, they've never formally launched any impeachment process. So they still have left themselves a way out. If the whole thing falls apart, which it could, they can say, well, there was nothing formal here anyway, so uh, we're just going to move on. Jill Winebanks, briefly, will it happen? I think that there will be a vote. I think people in America have moved on to believing what the evidence is and understanding the evidence. I think we also need to look at You played part of Richard Nixon's resignation speech, but there's another part that I found very moving, which was when he said, this goes against every grain of my fiber and beliefs to resign, but I am acting in the best interests of America. And I think in the end, Richard Nixon, despite his crimes, did believe in the rule of law and our constitutional uh, form of government, and that he did act in the best interests of America. Elaine K. Mock. I believe the House will vote. They will draw up articles of impeachment. They will vote the articles. They will send them to the Senate. And I would have to say that the Senate will probably acquit the president, but more narrowly than we think. And justice will have been served all the way around. Future presidents will have been warned that you cannot abuse power in the way that this president has. And yet we will leave the final decision on what happens to Donald Trump to the electorate in 2020. And I think that that's frankly a pretty good thing. Jeffrey Engel, a historian predicting, gets the last word. Will it happen? You know, I think there's a 80 to 90 percent chance that the president's going to be impeached by the House. And there's, I think, I give at this point, honestly, a, a one in three chance that the president is convicted in the Senate. And the key point about that is that if you had asked me that 10 days ago, I would have said there was zero chance. Betting odds, a fitting way to end. That's it for this week on The Real Story. Many thanks to our guests, Jeffrey A. Engel, Elaine K. Mark, Jill Weinbanks and Bob Barr. And if you'd like to listen to the programme again or any other from our archive, you can listen back online by searching for BBC The Real Story. From me and the team on the programme, that was The Real Story for this week. Thank you for listening.